essay that says, how are we going to get where you want to go, which is not just saving some money on a few things, but transforming your business to being a market leader. Peter, it's great to be able to talk to you about your new book. Uh, could you give us um, a brief summary of the major points you're trying to make in the book? And more importantly, how you're trying to challenge the conventional wisdom about business and sustainability? Uh, sure, Larry. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, as I did my research, I think one of the things that struck me was that the conventional thinking on sustainability is still very much one of incremental change. And I think it's easy to get lost as we, you know, you hear on the news media about a Tesla or some company like that. And those are clearly noteworthy uh, companies and accomplishments. Um, but if I did a simple exercise um, and like I mapped out a timeline of uh, changes in atmospheric CO2 and on the timeline, I looked at the in the 92 Earth Summit and the, the 97 Kyoto Accord and the 2009 uh, Copenhagen Accord and the 2015 Paris Accord. And you look at that, you know, close to the last 30 years and you say, have any of these things changed um, the, the results? Has it changed the level of atmospheric CO2 in any kind of positive way? And the answer is no. And I think you can do the exact same thing when you look at, if you look at the global compact, which has been around since 2000, the United Nations global compact, you know, there's almost 12,000 companies signed up, which seems very impressive, um, unless you realize that there are literally millions of companies around the world, um, particularly when you include small to medium-sized businesses. So the, my sense of this is we're simply making way, uh, the progress is way too slow for what is happening. And although it's nice when you hear a company like a Toyota say that by 2050, they're going to try to be you know, carbon neutral, 2050 is really far out there. And unless we make a lot more progress in the next 10 years, um, I'm afraid that some of the change is going to be baked in. And if you add on top of that the coronavirus kind of activity, which is likely to impact state and local budgets and a variety of other things in a negative way, um, then it's even more challenging. So the point of the book is really to lay out a blueprint for how would you, as a company, go about doing this. Um, and uh, within there, I try to differentiate the challenge of small businesses and of ecosystems, which are terribly important, and lay out how would you look at this as a organizational change uh, exercise. You know, what would you do first and how would you go about doing things? And so to me, you know, that is really what's necessary. When you meet a company, if they're sitting on the fence, how do I get them to take that first step? And if they take the first step, how do I get them to accelerate uh, change? Um, so anyway, that's the overall picture. Let me um, uh, thank you for that. Um, when I first read the manuscript, um, what struck me, I was very excited to read it. What struck me was that the way you present the blueprint is uh, sort of served up for a business person, uh, not as castor oil they have to take, but as a way of achieving the advantages uh, on things that are important to them. 
there, there was nothing that I read uh, that would cause a business person to say, well, I know it's an important goal and I know you're taking the world's interest to heart, but hey, look, I got to meet the interests of my investors or my stakeholders. Uh, it, there's none of that. You, you really have pulled everything out inside out and said, no, here's how you do more of what you want to do. And this also accomplishes these goals of decarbonization. Um, am, I, am I giving you too much credit? Uh, hopefully not. Um, <laughs> but I, I think when I talk to someone, um, and again, I, I haven't talked to Elon Musk, but I don't think that's the person I have to convince. Um, I really am focused on the vast majority of companies that are not doing things. And I can start a conversation with people and say, I can show you a four-step model that you're going to have to do anyway, whether you like it or not. But I can show you how to do this and get a return on your investment from day one. Um, I can show you how to do this with no risk and how you can use these early wins to build the social and political capital that you need to make a change. And I mean, you know, from your own, own work, you, if you start talking to people about really big challenges like water diplomacy or something like this, very often people get into the habit of saying, oh, this is really not my problem um, because it requires so many different players. So I like to go in and say, let me start with the basics. And I outlined seven things in the beginning of the book that says, this is what people have been doing for the last 20 years successfully that you can too. And if I say to you, you can focus on energy efficiency, waste reduction, material efficiency, packaging optimization, uh, transportation efficiencies, recycling or remanufacturing, you can take any one of those and save money on your supply chain right now. There's no downside to this. There's no real risk to this. And generally speaking, you don't need permission from your board to do that. Um, now, having done that, you know, everyone, every company is going to have to be compliant to some degree with new legislations. And the second step of going into efficiency, if you use it correctly, you know, to, to do some prototyping in your business, to show some gains that you can then use to move on to sort of the transformational kind of things. You know, this is really the road to success. And this is not a brand new idea. This is adapting successful change management theory um, to do this. The, the hard part is to get people into that stage three where they take responsibility for this idea. Um, as it says in the, um, the global compact that, you know, businesses should support a precautionary approach to environmental challenges. And in the same way, whether the company chooses to focus on um, uh, climate change or they choose to focus on equality or hunger or any one of the other challenges in the sustainable development goals, the goal still is how can I move this company in the right direction? How can I win hearts and minds within the company and start doing experiments while I'm making money with these other things that allows me to sell the transformational idea within the business. And to me, it's a winning formula. Um, and it does get a little complicated after that, depending on the business you're in. But nevertheless, it is a formula that you can lay out. You can show that it's low risk. You can show people how to create wins. And I have always found that there are people within an organization who can be very passionate about this. So there's no absence of, of young leaders in an organization um, who wouldn't love to take on a project 
where they start, you know, doing the kinds of things that would allow a business to transform into something more sustainable. And that to me is, again, never seen that go wrong. So I think that is something that's easy to sell a business. And you can, in fact, show that there are lots of companies out there, maybe not doing everything, but achieving lots of individual successes. Can we zoom in on the responsibility step just for a minute? Um, you, you talk to lots of company uh, management uh, staff in lots of different industries in different parts of the world. And I hope, I hope our listeners understand you're not sitting in an academic department writing this, that everything you say in the book is explained with reference to real places, real firms trying to do things. But in all of these encounters, can we assume that the people with the responsibility have the capacity to do what you said and conceptualize for each of those seven areas exactly what they need to do to mobilize their people around things that their people haven't been mobilized around before? I mean, if, even if they don't have to sell it to their board, this still takes some capacity. And if they haven't been doing this, do you have confidence that the people who are the managers can step in and do these things? Or do they, they have to be replaced by this younger generation of managers who can and will take responsibility? Well, I think that's a really good question. And this, to me, it's fundamentally a talent uh, management question for your organization. And very often, the biggest challenge is within companies that have been doing something for a very long period of time. So if I take as an example, um, I did some work with the folks at Mahindra and Mahindra Farm and Tractor in India. So this is a company whose entire business model is based on you know, um, carbon consuming gasoline and diesel engines. This is their business. Um, and the chairman of the company um, decided that he needed to be more responsible as a, as a leader. And he tasked the supply chain department with getting rid of single use packaging. Now, that sounds like a really simple thing. Oh, just get rid of the single-use packaging. But an automotive company has hundreds of thousands of different um, products that go into what they manufacture and thousands and thousands of suppliers. So this is not a small task. And it's just you can start asking simple questions. But the reality is you could have someone who's been doing something one way for 30 years in supply chain. And the legitimate question is, well, where are they going to get the expertise? Um, to do this. And that is a very, very realistic question. Um, do they know how to do it? And I think one of the things I really emphasize in the book is the value of partnerships. Um, because very often you have to look uh, into places um, where you never partnered before. Um, and a great example uh, is uh, what Dow Chemical did going back several decades now is when they started to look at things um, in terms of the water consumption for their company, and they're trying to be more responsible, and they're trying to do work more with natural capital pricing, right? You know, what is the value of a, of a forest or an estuary, and what is the impact of pollution? And if I need this supply of water for a long period of time, how do I think of this? Now, the people in your finance department have never dealt with this. So they created a very innovative partnership with the Nature Conservancy. Um, and that's a pretty unusual group to get together, Dow Chemical and the Nature Conservancy. 
but the Nature Conservancy as a nonprofit is a repository of this knowledge. And they know a lot about that. And that's where you find a lot of companies who are doing this well are really partnering in very, very different um, ways. And that's an important part of the skill development kind of thing. Um, it sometimes does require um, a change in um, your staffing. It may require a change in the way you look at development experiences that are available within your business and that you have to assign people who have a passion for this. And as in many change kind of situations, if you have too many people sitting on the fence and if they are standing in the way of your strategic change, well, then you have to help them understand that this is a choice they're going to take. Um, so this really is a leadership challenge that people have to work on. And there are a lot of these skill areas that I would call low maturity. And by low maturity, I mean, if I'm going to talk to you about finance and we're going to talk about a profit and loss statement or a statement of shareholders equity, it shouldn't be necessary for us to say, well, what do you mean by a statement of shareholders equity? It's a standard kind of uh, form. So, however, when I get to discussions on sustainability, I very often have to start at the basics and say, what do we mean by that? And what are our goals for that? And then you can see the cascade that begins to happen as you begin to think of your vision and mission is I've got to begin to think of competitive differentiation and how would I assess my products and how would I redefine key processes? Should I be hiring different people? Should my communication practices change, my measurements, my incentives? So all of these things are tasks. Um, so the key is to help someone get started, to help them mature their own knowledge over a period of time where we can work on things and they probably do need some outside expertise. But then we have to create a pathway that says, how are we going to get where you want to go, which is not just saving some money on a few things, but transforming your business to being a market leader. And I think there's a number of companies out there and ultimately we're gonna to get to a tipping point, um, hopefully in the next five to 10 years with this, that this is, becomes a necessity. Um, so that's the way I explain it to people. You've got to get on board here now early, otherwise you'll never build the expertise to do as well. To what extent do you have to uh, shade your argument or craft your argument differently depending on where the company is located? And I know lots of companies are footloose and they don't need to be um, in any one spot or that they're transnational in their operations. But the arguments about sustainability and the importance of it and the issues of expertise about implementing it, to what extent are they distributed differently or do you need to make different arguments to companies in different locations, in different cultural contexts? I mean, you, you work all over the world and you have more knowledge about what business is doing in Asia and both homegrown businesses from those countries and people from elsewhere. Do you have to tell your story differently? Does your model uh, have to be presented differently in China or Japan and India from uh, Brazil? Uh, a, a little a bit, but I think the real key is, um, and one of the points I try to make in the book and, and some of the latter chapters, is you know, there are things that we can perceive as barriers, such as the rise of nationalism um, or the presence of uh, different religious perspectives, um, which may or may uh, not affect what's going on. And I approach this by saying, I think all of these things are 
assets to leverage. So in the, at the moment, I'm working with some companies in the United States on the West Coast, and we're trying to deal with sustainability and diversity. Diversity is a very hot topic um, at the moment, but I see that as an advantage, not a barrier. And we're approaching that by looking at the ancestry of all the participants in the class. I'm asking them to come in and introduce me to their first ancestor to come to the United States. And by doing that, we're trying to deal with uh, diversity from a real positive perspective and understanding where we are and how that is. Um, I also want them to ultimately begin to tell the story of diversity and sustainability. It depends on if they're in the Tempe, Arizona office or the San Francisco office, or if they're up in Montana. It's gonna be a very different issue because in Montana, the issue of you know, fracking and, and, and oil consumption is a big part of their economy. So you'd have to deal with the business realities of where people are as long, along with the cultural issues. Um, so one of the things we're doing in Thailand, I've set up a, a company in Thailand at the moment, and I really want the staff to embrace this. Um, and to be honest, this is more my idea, but I'm trying to rally the troops around this. And I allowed them to pick you know, areas where we felt we could add social value. And you, know, you talk about the beauty of the country, but you also talk about the Buddhist philosophy, um, which is very, very much in making merit and things of that nature. So we, we feed with that, we go with that. So while we're making products where we're trying to look at the full supply chain, uh, in this instance, we're making rubber gloves as part of PPE equipment. We also wanna be working with the local farmers because 80% of the rubber is grown by local farmers and they're probably 100% Buddhist. So with that, we want to address food insecurity and some other issues in the local village, which builds trust um, with us and how we do it. And, you know, that part of the challenge, a lot of people really rally around. And I think one of the, the, the big challenges in transforming an organization is you have to be able to communicate this issue of sustainability, not just to the board level, but to every level in the organization. Um, you know, a moment ago, I talked about working with a bank in, in, in the United States on the West Coast. So the real challenge there is not just to work with the lending officers to say, let's not uh, fund. Um, projects such as tar sands or Arctic drilling that have a negative impact on the environment. But how do I communicate with your tellers and your customer service representatives about what do they do differently? You know, I can say, yeah, this big thing is great, but what do I do differently so I can embrace this so we can really unlock the innovation potential of the entire organization? And that requires very specific country by country, region by region sort of thought. Um, but it's where you really have to allow the people there to embrace this, get them started, and then allow them to figure it out. And they'll, they'll, they'll do a fantastic job, at least in my experience. You know, the, a lot of these companies have a lot of younger workers who very much um, take this issue seriously. And you just have to unlock that potential in many ways. Well, it's very heartening that the general model can be um, implemented in uh, different ways that uh, take special care to uh, begin with cultural assumptions or it could be any kind of, I mean, you know, you use religious cultural assumptions, but it could be styles of doing work or styles of doing business, whatever it is. But I hear you arguing or hear you saying that this is, this is not a, a mechanical 
step-by-step process where everything's going to be done the same way in different places. It's not just industry to industry, it's place to place. So that, to me, that's very reassuring. Um, Let me ask you about um, schools and business schools in particular. Uh, When I um, first read the book, I said, oh, this is going to be enormously important for business management schools around the world to um, incorporate a concern about sustainability into not just uh, the degree program and have a little corner over here and maybe they have uh, you know, a couple of units of credit devoted to sustainability. Everything that's presented in, in your book, I mean, it could be taught within supply chain management. It could be taught within finance. It could be, I mean, the book is multi-dimensional. Uh, Uh, When you think about, and I know you have also lectured at business schools, when you think about how business schools and other academic fields, um, the people teaching professionals can use your book, uh, do you have strategic ideas to share with them? Um, um, Yes. Um, Although I, I, if I go back to my thinking on we need to make faster progress. Um, I've targeted a little bit of the executive education side. Of, the of, training of side more than the Correct. Be- because that allows me the opportunity to work with people who can have a bigger impact tomorrow. Um, so I believe in the sense of urgency on this. And so therefore, that's my first uh, target. I think within business schools, again, there are some targets. There are some business schools out there that are really trying to reorient their entire curriculum um, around um, sustainability. Uh, not as many of the really big schools, but you've got to so the business school in Luzon, Switzerland, which is now the 100% of the curriculum is focused on sustainability. Um, um, Jeff- Jeffrey Sachs had done some things with uh, Sunway University down in Malaysia. So you have these examples around the world of, of institutions grappling with the idea of how do I convert the entire curriculum um, um, over onto this. Uh, you know, personally, as I've talked to people in different universities, I think this can extend well beyond um, uh, business schools because I think you know you also can have a sociology department and you can talk about. Um, societies, long-lived societies, which have solved some of these sustainability challenges over time. And you say, well, what allowed them to exist for hundreds of years in relative stability with their environment? Um, What kind of secrets did they have for governance? What kind of secrets do they have for problem solving? And I tease out a little bit of that um, in the book, uh, because I think very often there are these answers which are in front of us to discover. Um, so I'm, I still have high hopes for business schools that we can do more because I think the audience is, uh, is, is, is very ripe um, for this in terms of the age groups that tend to do this. Um, but for the most part, it's still a layered on approach where you'll take, uh, unless you're in a specific environmental curriculum, you know, you'll go through your normal MBA and there'll be a course or two there. But it would require a commitment to say, how do I change my case library? to really focus on these environmental challenges. So they are you know, foremost in all the learning that I do in every class. Again, as you say, whether it's talking about finance or marketing, what have you, you could do this in every functional group. And that's really what's necessary. 
you've got to get everybody in these groups thinking um, a bit uh, differently. And, and I find that when you really get them thinking, um, people embrace it. They, they really, um, and if I have, have a, a moment, I'll give you one example. Okay. That there's a, there's a simple exercise I do with people, and you can do this in most functions. A scale of one to five, and you lay it out that you know, high negative, net negative, neutral, net positive, high positive, and I give definitions next to each one of these things. I said, so rate for me the products and services in your company. And I could even create a fictitious company to do the same thing. And everybody gets, and you get people to work on coming to agreement on these things. And you say, okay, that's fantastic. So now we're all in agreement about where we are and where we have to go. Now, let me do a simple thing like change boundary conditions, right? Because the definitions for the most part talk about the company as we define it legally. Now I'm gonna to say to you, now you need to consider all of the tier one and potentially tier two suppliers, right? And if you've got raw materials coming in, your scope one and your scope two suppliers, you are now responsible if you're in a garment business, not just of working with the companies who supply you, but how about the migrant farm workers who supply them? Now let me make you responsible for that and tell me how, are your, how is your function going to change? What new responsibilities do you have to take on as a leader? What new risks do you have to take on? And do you have confidence that you can do this? And if not, where do you feel you would need partnerships? And I could spend just on those simple changes, I could spend easily a day working with people on this and it really begins to expand their thinking. And I think that's where business schools excel, right? Of having a class where you can get that sort of critical thinking, that peer-to-peer -peer exchange going on. So we have, again, these models, whether it's executive education or within a business school, that we know how to do this. Um, and we've got to make better partnerships with business schools and corporations to use those resources and to, to use this, this, this academic sort of research on this to expand the knowledge domains and bring people along and potentially train uh, ecosystems together, because that's really one of the really weak areas um, around the world, particularly in developing economies, that even people who want to change because the ecosystem is not there and you don't have informed um, public policy, that it's almost impossible for them to do it by themselves. And that's really disappointing to you. That's the biggest disappointment I see around the world is you have motivated people and people who want to do the same thing, but the environment does not support that kind of change. How do you um, come out on the question of regulation, whether it be through global treaties or national regulation or state regulation? I mean, historically, and I would say today in the United States, the leadership talks about environmental regulation as something that's harmful to a business enterprise and to economic growth and to investment. Um, you're talking about having to invest new resources uh, inside different companies, whether it's using your people differently or, uh, or, or finding additional capital or changing relationships. Um, do you think that this move to sustainability using the model you're describing would be enhanced by more uh, rigorous or formidable uh, regulation? Or do you think if we just leave the regulation aside or reduce it, um, then the people will see the argument for the economic benefit that goes with more sustainability? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I firmly believe that there's going to be more regulation, whether you like it or not. Um, and 
if you accept that, and I think most businesses can can acknowledge that. I was asking you an ideological question. Um, yes, you did say that it's more likely to come, but I'm wondering whether you see it in the light of what you're trying to get accomplished by a move to sustainability. Do you see regulation, if it's done in a certain kind of way at a certain level, as a as support for that? Or yes. You okay? So that that's the question I'm asking. I maybe didn't yeah. say it. Ab absolutely, informed public policy is absolutely essential. And again, I'll give you a, a good example. Um, you know, Tesla is out of the blocks now, doing a phenomenal job of highlighting that you can in fact make attractive, high-performing electric vehicles. They're they're doing that. The real question for the energy for the for the industry is what about Ford and Volkswagen and Toyota? Right now, EVs are only 2% of car sales. And everybody at Ford and Volkswagen kind of knows they've got to get into this. But they, you know, so the question for them is, do they feel it would be better for them if there was a regulatory environment that leveled the playing field and directed everyone towards sustainability? And I think you've had a, a, an argument uh, over um, fuel economy standards in the United States where the vast majority of companies were really siding with California on stricter standards. And the key for these guys is, even if that battle in the United States is going one way, they have to deal with the fact that the city of Paris or the city of London is now saying, well, we're not going to allow um, any carbon emitting transportation vehicle into our cities by certain dates, 2030, 2040, whatever the dates are. You're sort of saying, now, am I going to be a player or am I not going to be a player? So I think a lot of companies see the benefit to informed public opinion. And I, I don't try to not to talk about this as bureaucracy, but informed public policy, um, which gives them a clear path and an opportunity to say, yes, we're now on the road where we are going to move towards a carbon free transportation sector. And that allows everyone to innovate in that space and you know, let the best companies win. Absent that. I'm afraid, you know, it's going to be really hard to invest and do do things well if you're trying to have one foot in all camps. Um, you're not going to do anything particularly well. So if I was an executive, I would want that help um, in many instances. And if I am a small business, the small businesses, I think, would embrace it. Um, not more reporting, but would embrace the kind of help that says, this is how we're going to allow your small business to keep growing without shouldering all of the cost of innovation yourself. And you don't think government subsidy is necessary to make this happen, only a kind of indicative planning that levels the playing field? Well, I mean, to me, I think government can certainly seed certain things, and government has always done well with that. Um, so, you know, a government partnering with a university like MIT and saying, you know, we want to help this industry over here um, with some ideas on how to make their products more biodegradable. I think that's a, a wonderful idea where government investment um, can be helpful, not on picking winners and losers, but on saying, you know, this is a tough thing for any one company to solve. So to help everybody, we're going to seed this and we're going to create a partnership where everyone can participate. I think so those sort of things are you know, fantastic uh, for what they're doing. Um, for uh, I think for industry associations, there's a fantastic opportunity to partner um, uh, as groups. So if you're in the cement industry association and you're a major cement 
uh, applier. This is a standard building product around the planet. We're not going to do without it. But figuring out ways to make it less um, environmentally damaging is in everybody's interest. And the major uh, cement um, you know, companies, I think it's in their interest. So they can work together. They can work through their industry association. And of course, they now have to deal with countries all over the world. So that's where working through an intergovernmental makes a lot of sense. It's much more efficient. And you can get treaties and other things to sort of solve part of this problem where it doesn't uh, benefit any one country over another and it doesn't sort of uh, put anyone at a competitive disadvantage. So there's a whole area here of government uh, public policy which has to migrate with the business challenge and, and keep pace with it. But I don't think you can do one without the other. Um, that's very clear, and I appreciate your, your clarity on that point. And um, not just because I agree with you, but I, <laughs> I think it's well argued. Um, final thing, um, the book covers a lot of ground uh, in an extreme, I mean, I can say this in a really elegant and simple simplified way for either teaching or self-learning. Uh, but we didn't cover everything. And I wanted to give you a chance if there are any other points you want to make about uh, the argument in the book or the material in the book and um, in ways in which different uh, audiences might find them find it helpful. Well, you know, one of the areas I really try to emphasize in the book is the idea that in a lot of these areas, um, the knowledge domains are low maturity. And when you're in a low maturity knowledge domain, uh, and again, thinking back, if your own experience with negotiation, right, when you first started thinking about, you know, how do we um, uh, do this and get more rigorous on this, um, there were lots of definitions for, for what was going on there and not a lot of depth of research. So today, I think we've got to have organizations which say, all right, if there's a low maturity in this, how does my learning and development function change. And, and I think that's really important for, for, for businesses to think about where is the opportunity within my organization or within my partnership to build that bench strength in that next generation of leaders? How do I think of job rotations and things of that nature? Because the value in those development assignments is really, really important to the business. So if you had an assignment, which really allowed the participants to experience what social value creation was, I think that's really important. Um, I think companies also really have to embrace the idea of experimentation. Um, if you have a conversation these days with people about business models, you know, start talking about net benefit models or offset strategies or shared value or circular economy. And a lot of these definitions are fairly loose. And you still have to get down to, so what does this really mean? Look, how, how do you build some expertise so we have people in our company who really understand this idea of circular economy? Because by the way, there's a lot of different companies in Europe in particular, they're seriously considering this. And if all of a sudden you know, you're man manufacturing uh, dishwashers and the government says, you're now responsible cradle to grave, the people are gonna bring back these dishwashers when they're done and give them back to you. And you're gonna have to disassemble them and take off those powder coatings that are next to impossible to get off and figure out how to get rid of the stuff. So those are challenges. And I think unless you embrace this idea that we have to start building our own knowledge heuristics in different businesses and thinking of that as really important information that potentially leads to competitive differentiation, 
And I've got to really figure out how can I accelerate my talent development in different ways. So I've got a two-year head start on some of my competitors. I think those are really important conversations. And I spend a lot of time uh, on that notion of how do you think through the learning process? How do you build sustainability champions? Um, and then in many instances, uh, how do you do that, not just within your core company, but how do you do that with your supply chain, you know, with your extended uh, ecosystem? Because very often, if you're ahead of the game, you've got to bring a lot of your suppliers along with you. And I, I illustrate a number of companies that are doing that uh, in the book. And I try not to use um, the, the, the typical example. So and I'll use an example like Galaxy Casinos you know, in Macau, working with their small partners on how, how does that work? How do these companies do it? And how do they get their whole supply chain coming along in an industry that's not really known for their sustainability practices? Um, and that's the kind of example I think we have to figure out. And I do try to cover that quite a bit in the, in the latter chapters of the book. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. I, I, and I'm, I'm, I think it should be clear for anybody who's listened why uh, we're so proud uh, to have the book in the Anthem Environment and Sustainability Initiative program of books. Um, I, I really don't think there's anything quite like it in terms of um, merging theory and practice and presenting things in a way that both the training and broader education can benefit from. And it's all because, uh, as I know, it's your experience, not just your thinking about this. So uh, thanks for taking the time to review this with us. Um, uh, I hope there will be lots of readers who will then want to get back to you and uh, give you a sense of how they've been able uh, to launch a, a sustainability improvement effort because of the book, because it, it has everything in it to do that. We just have to convince people to look at it. Uh, in any event, Peter, thank you so much. Appreciate it. I appreciate the support, Larry, and as always, good talking to you. Thanks a lot.